Hi, I'm Leon Gorin, president of PEO Leadership, a peer-to-peer leadership advisory firm. We're an amazing community of CEOs, presidents, and senior executives. Ask yourself, are you learning as fast as the world is changing? It's time for Ontario business leaders to band together for counsel and support. It's time for you to tap into the business wisdom of our peer groups and unlock new ways to grow. I want you to come out of this COVID crisis a better leader and your organization ready for what's next. Take the first step at peo-leadership.com. Special thanks to Vaughn Metropolitan Center for helping us bring you today's PO Leadership's Way Forward podcast. So I'm just going to introduce myself and get everything rolling here. So for those that don't know, I'm Leon Gorin. I'm CEO of PO Leadership and welcome to the Way Forward, our live webcast series. If you're joining us for the first time and you're a CEO, president, business owner, and or a corporate executive looking to grow your leadership capabilities and performance, and of course, grow your business, you've landed in the right spot. In this rapidly changing business landscape, the importance of expanding your connections and having insightful and meaningful conversations with the right peers is now more important than ever. At PO Leadership, our members include some of Canada's strongest leaders representing almost every industry. They lead both Canadian SMEs and large multinational organizations. And in our audience today, we're also excited to welcome the business leaders of our U.S. Alliance Partners, Allied Executive, and Inc. CEO Project. The leaders of all three of our organization understand the value and importance of being able to connect and think with each other, you know, in in light of what we're talking about today, collaborate and respect each other as individuals as well, as we all work to successfully achieve the personal goals of our members and their organizations. So if you're thinking about the future of your business and navigating through the many unknowns that lie ahead, if you're thinking about your stakeholders, and your employees and how you'll continue to engage, inspire and support them. If you're thinking about whether and how you should pivot your business and understand the importance of being able to step outside of your building to learn from others, then I think you've landed in the right spot. I urge you to reach out to us. You can visit us at our website, po-leadership.com. Consider taking part in our 60-day trial, experience what it's like to have an advisor, a board, community help you realize your personal and professional and organization's growth objectives. So this morning, I'm very excited to welcome both Kim Scott and Trier Bryan. Kim is the author of Just Work, Get Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, as well as the New York Times bestseller, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim was a CEO at Dropbox, CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and various other tech companies. She was a member of the faculty of that at Apple University and before that led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. Earlier in her career, Kim managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. She lives with her family in Silicon Valley. Trier Bryan is a strategic executive leader with distinctive tech, Wall Street, and military experience spanning over 15 years. She's previously held leadership roles at Astra, Twitter, Goldman Sachs, and proudly served as a combat veteran in the United States Air Force as a captain leading engineering teams while spearheading diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives for the Air Force Academy, Air Force, and DOD. She's been featured as an influential DEI practitioner by several publication outlets from US Today to CNN and SKSW. Trier earned a BS in systems engineer with a minor in Spanish and leadership from the United States Air Force Academy, where she played division one volleyball. Together, both Kim and Trier founded Just Work in February of 2021. 
Now, before I begin this session, a couple of things. One, I'll let you know how I think, I hope it's going to unfold. So we thought we'd spend the first 30 to 35 minutes, more of a fireside chat, talking about some of the opportunities, some of the issues, some of the challenges, and then open it up to Q&A and really have you put forth some of the, the questions, some of the thoughts on your mind. And to do so, what I'm going to ask is that you do it through the chat. So please, as we're going, put the questions in there. And at 30, you know, when we're in about 30, 35 minutes, I'll go to the chat box and try and either bring you out of mute so you can ask the question yourself. Or if you're not, you know, I know the sensitivity of the subject and I hope this won't be an issue, but if you're not feeling comfortable asking a question or you got something really pointed, um, direct it to me. Just, you got my name there, it's Leon Gore. Just do a direct message and I'll ask the question anonymously uh, for them. So really wanna get you all involved. I know Kim and Trier do as well. And uh, let's get started. So good morning, Kim, Trier, and welcome to PO Leadership. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, good morning. Thank you. So uh, let's begin. Uh, first of all, we talked quickly about the book. So I'm going to start with the book at, with Kim. And just, Kim, tell us a little bit of the inspiration behind the book. What got you motive? I know you love to write, but what got you behind writing this book? Sure. So shortly after I published Radical Candor, and by the way, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. So I was getting a lot of feedback about Radical Candor. And I was in San Francisco giving a presentation to a tech company. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade and is one of too few black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the presentation to her team, she pulled me aside and she said, look, Kim, I'm really excited about Radical Candor. I'm excited to roll it out on my team, but I got to tell you that it's a lot harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. She said, as soon as I offer even the most gentle criticism, even the most compassionate candor to someone, I get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I, I knew this was true. And then she said to me, and I got to imagine, Kim, it's a lot harder for you than it is for the men who we work with. And I also knew this was true. And I sort of had three revelations at the same time. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of upstander who I, who I imagined myself to be, who I want to be throughout, throughout my career. I had failed to notice, for example, for my colleague, who I really liked a lot, that she was always unfailingly polite and pleasant, never seemed even a slight bit annoyed. And I knew in that period of time, she had what to be pissed off about in, in the time we were working together. And it had just never occurred to me the toll that that must have taken on her and, and that I had refused to notice the things that were happening to her. Uh, the second was that I had, and this is particularly hard for the author of Radical Candor to admit, but I had been in denial about the things that were happening to me. I did not, I, I just had sort of gone through my career pretending that what was happening wasn't actually happening to me as a woman in the workplace. And perhaps most difficult of all, I realized that I had failed to be the kind of leader that I imagined myself to be. I had, had often failed to create the kinds of environments that would prevent those sorts of things from happening to underrepresented people. So that was, I guess, in a nutshell, why I decided I'd better uh, get out of denial and, and sit down and write just work. 
Well, I want to thank you for that. Like, as I, I mentioned to you before, I just finished the book and it, it was, it's fantastic. So first of all, anybody listening to this, you really need to pick up a copy of the book and um, not just read it once. I read it through once, but you got so much information there that it's, it needs a reread. Trier, I'm going to go to you. Like, so how did the Kim Trier duo come together and form Just Work? You're the CEO now of uh, Just Work. Yeah. So um, when Kim reached out and, you know, um, allowed me to read the early edition of of the book and we were talking about, you know, um, you know, what she wanted to do with the book and and potentially a company, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm a chief people officer at a really great startup, literally a hot startup, like rocket, um, launching rockets into space at Astra. And um, I was like, but I'm going to read the book. And so um, the way that, you know, Kim likes to just say it is that Kim wrote a book about having a lot of root canals and she has ideas on like how to make it not as painful. Um, but she calls me the actual dentist, right? The person who's been a people HR leader. So I read the book and I thought it was incredibly powerful and so different, Leon, uh, for two reasons. One, I also consider myself a DEI practitioner and we don't have enough frameworks for people to leverage, for leaders to leverage, for organizations to say, here is a framework, tactical and practical, and put this into practice within your organization. And so I said, Kim, we have to get this into as many organizations, into as many leaders as possible. Um, And then the second thing that was just really powerful is that I had a lot of feedback for Kim. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of things in the book that if you are an HR people leader, you're going to be like, oh, I really don't want my managers to do that. I understand the intent, but let's talk about it and work through it together. But there's so much there where leaders and organizations can partner together and people in HR teams can take this to really transform their organizations so that you can have more equitable and just um, workplaces. And I thought that it was so powerful that um, I thought it wasn't the opportunity to leave my role, but I, I did. I was so inspired and that's how Just Work, the company came into play. That's awesome. That's a great story. Um, so let's let's dive into it, and and maybe I start with Kim frameworks. I, I get that when reading the book, you are an expert at developing these frameworks, but it's fantastic because it, you put it in simple simple terms for people to really understand it. Let's talk about definitions and really the root causes of some of this workplace injustice, and um, maybe you can talk a little bit some of the definitions of how you framed it too. Yeah. So at least for me, one of the things that I came to realize as I was writing all these stories about the stuff that that had happened to me in my career, but also the stuff I had done to other people in in my career, like the first part of the framework is, is being very clear about what your role is. Sometimes I was the person harmed by workplace injustice. Sometimes I was the person who caused harm. And, and that was actually harder to come to grips with. Sometimes I was the upstander or the failed upstander, as in the story I just told. And other times uh, I was the leader. And so being clear about what you can do, what, what your degrees of freedom are to act in each of these different roles is really important. And then the other thing that I realized is that I often conflated thing, three very different problems. And so it's really important to disentangle them. We often confuse bias with prejudice with bullying. And to me, once we disentangle bias, prejudice, and bullying, it becomes much clearer what we can do about each. So the simple definition of bias is not meaning it. 
you don't really in, you don't, you don't really intend to to the, the the implications of what you've said and done are not something you really believe. Prejudice, on the other hand, is meaning it. You actually believe this thing when it's prejudice. And very often, when I would when I would when I would notice prejudice, something prejudice being said, I would try to pretend to myself that it was bias. That was part, and it wasn't, it was actually prejudice. So you got to deal with it differently. And then last but not least, there is bullying, which is just being mean or meaning harm. And, uh, and that you need to deal with very differently as well. So Trier and I have developed some specific things that leaders can do about each of these three different things and, and, and sort of think about how you can teach your team to distinguish among them. And Leon, when we're also talking about the roles, an important thing to just acknowledge is that you can be in an hour long meeting and literally play all four of those roles at the same yeah. time. You can be a person who has been, you know, being harmed by bias, then you could, you know, cause harm by bullying someone in that same meeting, um, be an upstander to intervene when someone may be exhibiting prejudice. And then as a leader, you know, have to put a mechanism in place to prevent that. So we're not talking over like courses of days or weeks or months that you might play these roles. Like we're constantly shifting through these roles throughout our day and in sometimes very short time periods playing multiple roles. So just maybe let's talk some examples in that meeting, right? So if you're the victim and somebody's does something, let's unconsciously, it's most, a lot of the stuff I'm going to assume going to be good nature. It's unconscious bias, but it happens in that room in that first hour of a meeting. As a, and you do this in the book, well, but Trier, what, as a victim, what would you do? And the one thing that resonated with me is silence is not the answer here. And, and that's right. That's right. We want to we wanna end the default to silence. So often we default to silence because we don't know what to do. Um, so Kim has a great example um, about the start of a meeting, bias happening, and then what do you do about it? So, so for example, a, a friend of mine, Aileen Lee, walks into a meeting with two colleagues who are men. And the, the, they all sit down, it's a big conference table, and they're meeting with another company. And everyone from the other company is a man. First guy comes in and sits across from the guy to Aileen's left. The next guy comes in and sits across from the next guy. And then they file on down the table, leaving Aileen dangling off by herself with nobody sitting across from her. And the, the meeting begins. And it turns out that Aileen has the expertise that they're there to talk about. But every time Aileen opens her mouth, the men from the other company turn to one of her male colleagues and ask him for the follow-up questions. And this happens, uh, raise your hand if you've noticed this happen. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. Uh, and so this happens once, it happens twice, it happens a third time, and her colleague finally notices what's going on. And he stands up and he says, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. And they do, and it totally changes the tenor and the whole. Because all of a sudden, everybody notices what's happening, and the 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 men from the other side had not intended to exclude Aileen in this way. And when they realized what they were doing, they changed their behavior. And so it was so much easier for him to do that than it would have been for Aileen. If Aileen had done it, there would have been like bias on top of bias because 
she suddenly would have been abrasive or, you know, God knows what, that she would have been called some other kind of uh, gender term. And so, so one of the things I want to talk about and acknowledge in this book is that the, the gratitude that I have for the upstanders that have, uh, that have helped me throughout my career. And it's not because I'm the damsel in distress and I need help. It's because it's much easier for an upstander to, to intervene than it is for me to defend myself when I'm the, the person harmed. Or the victim, as you say. By the way, I wrestled with those words. Should I use victim? Should I use person harmed? <laughs> I'm not sure. You all can give me feedback and tell me if I landed in the right place. So that's a story about kind of what ought to happen all the time. But that, that story that I just told almost never happens. So Trier has come up with some ways that we can intervene as leaders in, when, yeah. when it's biased. So um, one of the things, you know, that we talk about in the framework is using uh, for the upstander using that I statement. Right. So, you know, I think we should switch seats. Right. Um, and but if in organizations, how do you create a culture where people are thinking in this way to interrupt the bias? And so we call these bias interrupters. And so to create a bias interrupter within your organization, it's important that you have shared vocabulary and then a shared norm. So shared vocabulary means what's a word or a phrase that everyone knows that when it's said that someone is acknowledging behaviors or an attitude that is biased so that we're interrupting it. Right. So, um, you know, Kim with her editor for the book, they used yo, um, you know, maybe it's like, hey, bias alert. Kim and I at Just Work and we are teaching a course right now. Um, we use a purple flag, purple from the book. So if someone says purple flag or you see Kim waving the purple flag that we all know that, hey, there was bias. But then we need a shared norm because then what happens after that? Because it can get a little uncomfortable, right? Um, so actually earlier, we threw a purple flag on Leon um, <laughs> saying guys, right? Guys. And so giving, giving the feedback. And so in that moment, we know that the, the norm is, hey, we're going to share what it is, right? And then the person is going to say, hey, thank you for acknowledging, for, for raising that. I appreciate it. Like, I'll do better. We get back to work. The meeting and conversation moves forward. But what happens if the person doesn't understand, right? So then the shared norm is, hey, I didn't quite understand that one. Why don't we connect after the meeting? And then we can have a conversation, right? But the important thing is that we're disrupting the bias so that we don't ignore it and that we don't perpetuate it. Um, and that it also creates a learning moment for everyone else. For our course, the other thing that we do is because it's over Zoom, which is so great, is that we can drop a link or give additional detail in the chat so that, again, the conversation and the course and the lesson continue to go, but people can read and get caught up and then, again, educate themselves. What I really love in Kim's example with Aileen is that the person knew that the bias needed to be interrupted. Now, maybe with external folks, you don't say purple flag because they're going to say, what does that mean, right? But to still use the power of the I statement and then, you know, later on have a conversation with Aileen and say, hey, if that was within like our own company, I would have said purple flag. But I, I recognize the bias and I was interrupting and I was being an upstander to stand up to the injustice. Right. Because it was not OK. So, Tria, I just want to we, we talked about it from an external. That was an outside meeting, a team of three, whatever it was, a presentation. But let's bring it into the internal, like within the organization, right? And I'm an accountant. And the first thing I learned when I, when I started running PL leadership was, I mean, you can look at numbers every which way you want and have the best strategy, but it's always about the people, the culture. And, it, and what I also realized, it always started with the leader. So getting a change of 
the way we operate, the way we address things has to start with the leader. Any advice on how we start that? You've got a new leader, just became a leader, a CEO of an organization. They're there for the first 90 days. How do they change the culture and the norms around be- allowing for the interruptions to happen, to catch yeah. these? Lead by example. Be vulnerable. Call yourself out, right? Call yourself into that. Throw a purple flag. Kim and I, at least multiple times a day, will not only throw purple flags at each other, um, but we'll also throw it on ourselves, right? Um, and there may be moments where we'll hear someone say something. Kim, what was it the other day in a meeting? Um, oh, they were talking about grandfathering. Yes. And they said, hey, we shouldn't use that term anymore. And Kim wasn't familiar, right? So I looked it up um, and put it a, 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 in the in the chat message. But um, that person in that meeting, when we explained to them what a purple flag was and calling out the bias, they did it on themselves and then educated us, you know, on that. So I think it's leaders to lean in, be vulnerable, lead by example, but also, you know, when we say person who's causing the harm and we we like to say being called in to receive that feedback, not calling out, creating that culture and those conversations that it's not a bad thing, right? We want that feedback to grow and develop. And how do you create that culture where people, um, you know, see it as a positive and are appreciative of that engagement versus feeling ashamed or shut down by it? So, for example, one of the CEOs who I coached had uh, had the, the habit, as most people do who aren't in the South and the U.S., of saying "you guys" when addressing his team. And and I said, and he was very focused on creating a better working environment for women. And he had asked me to come to him. Like one of the things he did was he hired me as his sort of bias buster. He, he wanted me. He invited me. He paid me actually to come in and tell him uh, what he was, you know, where the things he could do, big or small. And I said, one of the things that you could do, which may seem small, but it's actually going to be really hard, is to change your vocabulary around saying you guys. And he didn't get it at first. We had a couple of conversations about it. He didn't necessarily agree with me, but he was open to being challenged. And, and finally, he was like, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm invisibilizing all the women in the room. And I said, yes. Uh, and, uh, and so he really worked hard on changing his vocabulary. And at first he tried to change his vocabulary before he told the team that he was going to do it. And then he realized it would actually be better if he told the team and he asked the team to flag him when he did it. He said, I won't learn this unless people are interrupting it all the time. And this is really important because these kinds of these kinds of, of language, it is hard to change your vocabulary. It, it, we say it's easy and people tend to give up too soon. So, for example, as I was writing the book. I, I hired a bias buster who pointed out to me that I tend to use the word see in an ableist way when I really mean understand or notice. And you'll probably catch me a couple of times correcting myself in, in the rest of this talk. But I thought I had really understood how important it was. I, like I understood it intellectually. I also understood it emotionally because one of the people who was editing the book is a historian who's blind, Zach Shore. If you write anything, you should hire Zach Shore. He's incredible. And I really valued him and his contribution. And the last thing I wanted to do was use language that would harm him. So I thought I had fixed this problem. And then just before I turned the book in to the editor, I did a quick search. And I had 
used, misused, sloppy, I'd used sloppy site metaphors 99 times in 350 pages. It was incredible to me. Uh, and so when you can, when you can share those things, you, you make it, it's not that you're not holding yourself accountable for bias, you are, but you're also acknowledging that this, the fact that I am using this bias language does not make me a terrible person. Uh, what would make me a terrible person would be to deny that I was doing it or to insist on continuing to do it. So I think that kind of openness and vulnerability, especially around bias, is important. And the other thing I would say as a leader around bias, don't choose one kind of bias and focus on that. Don't think, oh, I'm going to solve the gender problem and then I'm going to deal with the we keep All of these biases work kind of in the same way. And when we can, when we, when we can address all of them at the same time, it actually makes it easier to solve them. We need to solve them in solidarity. We can't, one bias doesn't sort of operate, uh, you know, in isolation from all the other biases. And it also then you're not singling out one group of underrepresented people. So if I wanted to kick this off in my organization, Right. I, I totally get the role modeling is absolutely imperative because other people look at you, right, in terms of what you're doing and how you behave. But how do I kick it off? Like, am I calling a meeting for a couple hours? Am I walking them through different definitions? Um, you know, one thing in the book you talked about, people are taking these unconscious bias courses, I mean, as a first step. But you, are, you, you really say, yeah, that's a first step. But there's a lot that's got to follow after that. And you talk about the interrupters. So I don't know, Trier, you're going into these organizations and you, you've been chief people officer in a, a number of different organizations. What would you say, use me as an example. I mean, I want to start, I want to start this initiative. I want to make a difference. I want to create a just workplace. What's the first thing I need to do with my yeah. management team? Yeah, another thing that, you know, we recommend, and I think that this this next very tactical thing, um, it's a it's a little harder to implement, but it's so important and can be used in so many different ways of, as far as like, you know, really overcoming workplace injustices. But if we move on to just prejudice in the framework, which is meaning it, right? We talk about what leaders need to do is create a code of conduct. Now, it doesn't have to be called a code of conduct, but it really just needs to be something that you can hold people accountable to in your organization with some teeth in it, right? Because people can believe whatever they want to believe. Everyone has their own beliefs, but you can't come into an organization and do and say whatever you want. So leaders have to put those boundaries and, and put those expectations into place as far as you know what people can do and say in your organization and what that means and how, you know, they can't impose their prejudice beliefs on others. So for example, again, prejudice is meaning it. I was in an organization where we were interviewing for another talent acquisition leader. And at the end of the day, when we were debriefing, it was very clear that the top candidate that everyone had the most positive feedback on and was most excited about was a black woman who was wearing her hair natural the way that I'm wearing it in the interview. After we did the feedback, we were we felt, you know, all the interviewers were really excited that we were going to move forward with offer with this candidate. However, 
the hiring manager said, well, I'm not quite sure we're going to be able to go out to offer with her. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to really dig into that. Like, what did that mean? Why not? When all this feedback was positive. And this was an organization that is known for hiring the best and brightest. And the hiring manager said, well, Trier, we can't hire her the way she wears her hair like that. She can't go in front of the business, right? We can't put her in front of the business with her hair like that. And I assure you there was nothing in this job description that said anything about the way that you have to wear your hair. But that hiring manager, that was prejudiced because they meant it and they believed it that they couldn't put a black woman with her wearing her natural hair in front of the business to get the job done. So what can be in place to prevent those situations from happening? And that's where a code of conduct comes in, right? Where you tell people, hey, this, these are our values. This is how we're going to operate. This is how we're going to make hiring decisions and holding people accountable to that. And so, but as an upstander or the person who may have been harmed by that, which was the candidate who wasn't in the room, right? That's where we tell folks to use an it statement. And so an it statement, right, focuses on the prejudice, where an I statement with bias, it invites someone in, right? So if someone says like, hey, I don't think, you know, like Kim tells a great story about how someone called her a pretty girl once. And she said, hey, I don't think that I will ever take you seriously or work at a company if you call me pretty girl, right? So it's inviting that person in to make it personal of how it makes them feel. But with an it statement, you don't want to invite them in because they believe what they believe, right? They have their data, you have your information. So you want to focus on the prejudice to say like, it is not within our code of conduct to discriminate against someone because of how they wear their hair. It is illegal not to hire someone, which in the state of California and other states in the U.S. Marie, Christine, I am loving your facial expressions through this whole thing. You are fantastic, right? Um, so it is illegal for you know you to make a hiring decision because of someone wears their their um, hair. So using an it statement, but we really, you have to have a, a, a code of conduct. I'll give you a quick example of, of a code of conduct um, at uh, one of our previous companies. They didn't even have values, right? So let's just start there. Let's just talk about what are your company values? Um, well, so we created six values and I think that value should be very short. So these values, not a single value was over three words, six values, very important. However, under each value, there was three we statements. And the we statements were how you bring that value to life and how we expected people to behave. So if the value was people first, which was the number one value, people first, we respect each other um, and this organization and communicate with respect. That's how we put people first, right? What are the we statements that embody that value that let people know how you behave and engage within an organization? So, and I think, so, so, and to answer your question, Leon, what, what Triera is saying is as a leader, you've got to, first off, identify the difference between bias and prejudice. With bias, the first thing you want to do is get your team to write the words that they're going to use to interrupt it. So you, I'm, we're not going to give you the words you've got, and you shouldn't give your team the words, get them to give you the words. Are you going to say bias alert? Or are you going to say, are, do, are they going to say something else? But they've got to say something. Then with prejudice as the leader, 
you need to write a code of conduct and then you need to get your team to edit that code of conduct. And remember, the editor is the boss, not the writer. This is something I'm acutely aware of. So you've got to make sure that you're all getting all on the same page about where that line is between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want and another person's freedom not to have that belief imposed upon them. And it's easy to say that. It is really hard to write a code of conduct. So spend some time on it. And then I, I would say the third thing you need to do as a leader is to create consequences for bullying. So bullying is just being mean. So at one point, I was the CEO and founder of my co-founder of a, a different company. This would never happen at Trier and my company. Uh, but I was, I was when, when I was the CEO, I wasn't a very good one in this case. So, so because I had not created consequences for bullying. So there was the guy working for me. Also, I didn't expect myself to be bullied as the CEO. That was incorrect. So there's this guy working for me and he's not doing a very good job. I'm giving him some feedback. And, and I ask him towards the end of the conversation, as I try to always do, what could I do or stop doing that would help you improve this project? And he leans in and he says, the problem here is you are the most aggressive woman I ever met. And I'm like, gosh, you know, we're in a very aggressive industry. If I'm the most aggressive woman you ever met, uh, I'm not even in the top 100 most aggressive men. And part of your job is dealing with all these aggressive people. So your problem is clearly not my aggression. Your problem is my gender. And in my case, that's not going to change. And so, so this was, you know, was, I was a little bit taken aback, but in this case, I responded as though I were the person harmed. I, as the person harmed, I have a right to choose to respond or not to respond. And I, I, didn't, I, I didn't really say much to him. I didn't push back. I didn't use that you statement that Trier was talking about. I didn't say, you cannot talk to me like that which would have been a reasonable response as the person harmed. And then as the leader, what I should have added is, and if you talk to the other women in this company in that way, you will get a poor performance rating. And if you, if you can't change your behavior, you're going to get fired. Like we're, it's not acceptable to talk to people. That way. Yep. And, uh, and I didn't do that. And of course, the problem with bullying is that if you don't create consequences, conversational consequences, but also career converse consequences or com uh, compensation consequences, then it's going to escalate. Not only is it going to continue, it'll get worse. And indeed, in this case, it did get worse. Fast forward a couple of months, we're having a company all hands. He's sitting over a, a table. The garbage can is underneath him. A woman on the team comes up to him with a, with a paper plate and a pizza crust, clearly needing to throw her pizza crust away. And she says, I need, and it was obviously what she needed, the garbage can. And he spreads his legs and he's like, to get in between my legs. And, uh, and, and so it, it got worse. You know, he wouldn't have said that to me, but I was standing right there. And he felt comfortable to say something like that to a woman on the team in front of me because I had not created consequences for bullying. So can I offer Leon a, a, a summary, a slide? Yes. Sure. Uh, I, lo I love the visuals. Um, so, so just to sort of sum it up, distinguish as a leader, you need to distinguish between bias, prejudice and bullying. And you need to create bias interrupters 
that make it safe for people harmed by bias and also for upstanders, not just safe, but expected for people to interrupt bias with their I statement. You need to create a code of conduct. You need to write and have your team edit a code of conduct. Uh, and uh, that, that makes it much more clear what, what you're appealing to with your it statement. It is a violation of our code of conduct not to hire the most qualified woman because of her hair. Um, uh, you know, and there's also like the common sense for it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified person because of her hair. Um, but, but sometimes what is common sense is not is uncommon sense. And so you need to codify it in a code of conduct. And you also need to create consequences for bullying. So I would say these are the three things you all as leaders can do uh, to, to really start to change your culture. Yep. And I want to acknowledge, Leon, that like as a leader, as a chief people officer, for me, where I failed um, in preventing was bullying. Bullying was the hardest. And Jennifer, um, to your point, yes, not only does there need to be consequences, but those consequences need to be enforced top down. Absolutely. And why bullying is hard, especially in some of the smaller organizations is um, sometimes, you know, in a lot of organizations, you have the brilliant jerk. And <laughs> It's hard to hold consequences against a person that might end, have them end in leaving the organization when like you can't get your job done without that one person. Right. And there's this pressure of just trying to make excuses or maybe it's so we have a direct culture. That's just how we communicate. But they're being mean. They're both they're, they're bullying and they're causing a lot of harm and being destructive in your organization. Um, and so, you know, when I read the book and I reflected on this, this was the area where it was like, wow, there were so many missed opportunities where I didn't offer and, and, and enforce the right consequences. And then also some organizations as leaders, we do a really good job looking down at the organization and creating consequences, but we need to have the conversation as well as what happens across all these workplace injustices when it's happening at the very top level what happens when your CEO is exhibiting prejudice? What happens when your board members are bullying? And so what happens you know, when those situations occur to have those conversations beforehand so we know how to um, intervene and to hold people accountable at those highest levels as well? You know, it's funny, as you, as you guys are... <laughs> did I say guys? Ooh, where's the purple flag? <laughs> but I, I, I'm actually self-reflecting about you know, 20 years ago, I worked in a professional service firm and I remember down the hall, a partner, and there are many partners in this firm. It's, I'm not gonna name the firm, but all he would do would be yelling at people, bullying them. It was unbelievable. And you'd sit there and I'm in my 20s at the time and you'd be like, this is insane, but you'd never say a word and it's a partner, right? And I'm sure this still goes on in many organizations where, you're not even at the partnership level, you're at a manager level. What do you do in that situation? Like the CEO's never, you know, it's a, it's a large organization. The CEO could be in Toronto, you're in Los Angeles, wherever you are. And it's pretty scary. Like even I'm a guy and going to address this guy, I didn't, I never would do that. I, I would never stand up to this individual. I'd get yelled at as well. Any, uh, it's just something that just rang in my head as you were talking there. What would you do in a situation like that? Yeah, so we talk about a couple of different things, but one, um, as a chief people officer, 
my perspective is please escalate that and share that with your manager, the person you report to, or just go directly to your HR, your people team, because it's really difficult to hold people accountable when we don't know what's going on. Right. Um, and so allow your people in HR teams, hopefully they're good people in HR teams to do their work and to handle those, those situations. Right. But what are things that you can do beforehand to make that conversation easier, right? Document, document those things that you have a written down document, talking to other people and building solidarity, <coughs> excuse me. So talking to other people saying, I had this interaction with this person. Have you had that interaction with the person? And if there's trends and there's other folks, right, then building that solidarity that there's a real issue here, right? And that they can't say, well, this is a one-off or it's a, you know, individual situation. So there's things that you can do that can make that better. Um, But the other thing is also is that, you know, um, in the military, we take a class on hostile, working with hostile um, employees and having hostile communications. And one of the things that they teach us when we're leading our troops is that when someone is angry and they're kind of off, not saying this is always the situation, but having a personal conversation with them, because oftentimes, especially in this climate right now with everything going on, having the humanity and empathy that like, we don't know everyone's journey. We don't know everything that's you know going on. And so I've had to confront some bullies in our organization. And I'll just start with, you know what? We need to have a conversation about work, but let's put that aside real quick, right? And let's just talk about how are you doing? Still a you statement, right? Putting it back on them. How are you doing? What's going on with you? Are you okay? I see you engaging with people on my team in a really inappropriate way that you know is not appropriate at this company. That doesn't make you look good. That is not conducive to getting things done. So what's going on with you? And Leanne, I can't tell you how many times that that is just an opening for people to be like, I'm going through a divorce and I'm really stressed out. My daughter is struggling with bulimia and we don't know how to help her at at school. Right. And, and, and then that's where I, as a people leader, think it is my responsibility to say like, this is from the military too, is that when people are their best at home, they're going to be even better at work. So what resources can we provide? Or do you need to take some space and time so that you can deal with that so that you can, can come and be, you know, your best version of self at work. Thanks, Jerry. That's that's great. Yeah, I think another thing that you can do as a leader, you couldn't have done this as the you know as the sort of new employee facing the partner, but as a leader, one of the most important things you can do to prevent bullying on your in your organization is to create checks and balances because. There's a lot of research that shows the more power a person has, the more likely they are to engage in bullying. Like there's a workplace uh, study that that shows that 65% of bullying happens top down. Like not that many employees bully their their bosses. Uh, Unless you're the underrepresented leader, then you are more likely to get bullied actually. Uh, And so, one of the one of the most one of the best things that Google did to to make sure that nobody had to pay the asshole tax was they made it really easy for people to leave a team. If they had a boss they didn't like, they could easily that it was oh it was acceptable to go and talk to other people and just to switch teams. And your boss didn't have to give you any permission. And uh, and and that really took a lot of that. That was a significant check and balance on uh, on on leaders. I would say as 
a CEO and founder, one of the things that I, one of the big mistakes I made was as I started these companies, I used to focus on making sure I had control, uh, making sure there were no checks and balances on me. And, uh, and that was a big mistake because then I, I became the bully actually. Uh, and, uh, and it, like in the, in the, in the story I told the, the, the woman who, where the guy was like, you want to get between my legs, she wound up suing the organization for creating a hostile work environment. And the last thing I intended to do, believe me, was to create a hostile work environment for women. But she was correct. I had done it. And one of the things, this is uh, shameful, and I want you all to avoid making this mistake. One of the things that I did in response was to pay her off and make her sign an NDA. That is, a, that is so wrong. That is so wrong. What I did was really wrong because one of the checks and balances that we have in a society that we should have, it, it clearly doesn't always work, is our legal system. So an employee ought to be able to go. That's why forced arbitration and this, the way that we abuse NDAs. And NDA should be about trade secrets. It should not be about the shit that happens to you at work. I hope I'm allowed to curse on this. You're fine. Well said, actually. I totally agree. I have a, a question, um, and it's probably more relevant to the Canadians today than it is Americans, but we're still here in lockdown in Ontario. Just so you know, six-week lockdown, no one moves from their house. But a lot of the policies and conversations that we're having, what do you do? Like Zoom has changed the world a little bit, right? A lot. Whereas I heard the bully screaming down the hall, so did 20 other people. Today, you could be on a Zoom call and be screamed at and nobody hears anything and it could be abusive, right? It's. I'm wondering, are, are you seeing that? Are either of you seeing that? And then how are uh, corporations watching for it and dealing with it? I, uh, <laughs> there's actually data. I'm going to talk. I'm bring because, it in the chat right now, Kim. The project. Great. So, By the way, that's not my question. Somebody asked that question through. Okay. It's, a good, it's a good question. <laughs> so, Project Include actually has data on this, where it, it 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 demonstrates that as we've gone to these remote work environments, because because so much communication is happening <clears throat> in these one-on-one -on -one in chat in text. Uh, the, uh, in these private ways that are not able, you can't overhear them or, or, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like uh, uh, platforms where everybody sees what everybody else writes, that there's a lot more bullying going on. And, and people, uh, people are it, uh, underrepresented along a lot of, the, the, the report does a really good job examining intersectionality and the more intersections you stand at, the, wor the worst situation you're in right now. It's, it's incredible. Tria, you have other thoughts on this? Uh, it's, um, it's a really powerful report. And one of the reasons why I was so surprised by it, and I think most people would be, is that the headline of the report is that the remote work culture um, that not everyone is accustomed to, that we've all been kind of pushed into because of COVID, is exacerbating harm significantly. And you would think that that wouldn't be the case because we're not physically in the same spaces and, you know, you're not 
doing lunch with folks, there's less interactions. And so what this also means, though, is that if harm is being exacerbated in this remote culture, and now some organizations, maybe um, in Canada, but in the U.S., are starting to talk about coming back, like some organizations have given their return dates of reopening their offices. What does that mean if people coming back into the workplace in specifically in the U.S. with so many tense conversations and things going on. We've got Black Lives Matter, and it'll be the first time that people will be face-to-face working with colleagues with everything that's going on. Stop Asian hate, all of that that's going, like, it's just a lot, right? And then um, the two kind of underrepresented groups and organizations that I think are often forgotten about that I think, um, you know, we have to just really be paying attention to are one, caregivers and parents, And two, the other one is an underrepresented group in your organization now are employees who have onboarded and joined your company in COVID remotely, right? Which is a very different experience. Thinking about what is the culture of your company and how have they been able to experience that or observe that remotely? And then what happens coming back into the office? So just being keenly aware of this, but what is great about the report that I really encourage not only you all to dig into as leaders, but to share with your teams, is it not only gives you some really great data, but then at the end, it gives you some very tactical things of what to do. And so um, we are we are huge fans of Ellen Powell over at Project Include. And again, we love resources that help leaders get very tactical um, on how to be thinking about this, of not only continuing to be remote, but also when you're coming back into the workplace. I think, Maybe you can share the link to that. Yeah. So in the chat, it's, so people yep, can look the, at that. Sorry, Kim. Uh, the link is in the chat and and, okay. and we'll put it, maybe Leon, you can put it in the show notes as well. Really, I can't recommend this report highly enough. The the other, the one simple thing that I've been encouraging people to do is to start to track what percentage of time you are speaking in a meeting. And one of the, one of the sort of hidden forms of bullying that I think is much worse in, uh, in, in remote work is the, what I call the, the bloviating BSer uh, in a meeting. So this is the person on the team who is not better informed than anyone else, and, but is, uh, is, is talking three times more than anyone else. And this hurts collaboration enormously. There's a lot of research that shows that teams on which everybody speaks roughly the same amount of time perform better. And I, by the way, am guilty as charged. I am definitely um, take up more than my fair share time. Uh, so, so, so I'm not trying to point fingers at, at people, but I've been really trying to be aware of what percentage of time I'm speaking on a call and not, and there's actually tools that will help you track this. None of them are great. I, I've been trying to persuade the Zoom, folks at Zoom to build it in. And I, I think it would be a mistake for it to be a like a public dashboard because then it would be public shaming. But for everyone to get a private report of this, this meeting had eight people in it and you spoke 40% of the time. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Thank you, Kim. There, there are a couple of questions I'd like to come to. I'm trying to get my scrolling here. Brian, are you on the call still? Can you come off you, Brian Holland? Or Kelly will try and get you off. And I can have you ask that question. You asked it to everyone in the chat. I can just read. Oh, here you are. Right. Sure. 
There you go, Brian. It's always nice to hear the individuals. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's Byron, actually. Byron, but, sorry. Um, believe me, I've been called uh, Brian my whole life, so <laughs> I got it. Um, and uh, Kim, love your previous book. Uh, big fan of it, and uh, and certainly a lot of the elements in it are uh, in our company as a result of it. My question, and it's one of the I also just read Reed Hastings' book, who certainly seems informed by radical candor. And I'm wondering that challenge between the, the brilliant jerk who just says, I'm being really, really candid with you, um, and radical candor. And one person's brilliant jerk is another person's just being really candid. And how do you really start to unpack what's reasonable and challenge the brilliant jerk. I just wonder if you could unpack that a little, a little more for us. Yeah, it's a really important question. It's actually why I wrote a second edition of Radical Candor because so many people, I would I'd be working with the team and someone that would charge into a meeting and say, in the spirit of Radical Candor, and then they would proceed to act like what I consider to be a garden variety jerk. And that is not the spirit of Radical Candor, that's the spirit of obnoxious aggression. And so one of the things that I wanna sort of reiterate is that Radical Candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And that is an ableist metaphor. I'm gonna wave a purple flag. I'm gonna think of a better way to say that. But it is the other person gets to decide, not you, how it's landing for them. And I think each of us, when we're speaking to others, when we're giving radical candor, we need to learn how to notice the impact that our words are having on others and to know whether we need, that means we need to go up on care personally or over on challenge directly. So if the person seems sad or mad, you need to move up on the care personally dimension of radical candor. Whereas if the person is just not hearing, is not understanding what you're saying, then you need to move out on challenge directly. And so I think there are some people who in the face of an emotional response from someone else will, will, will actually double down and go further out on challenge directly. Whereas what they need to do is pause and try to understand a better way to say what they're saying so that the other person can understand what they're saying. It is, it is our job when we are speaking to be understood. Uh, and, and when we are listening, it is our job to understand. <laughs> Act. And if we, if both the listener and the speaker take 80% responsibility, maybe we'll communicate. Okay. Uh, but I think usually when person, when people say, I was just being candid and the other person is in tears, they're not being candid, they're being a jerk. And, and Byron, I think the other part that people miss also is that radical candor when we're on their axes of like challenging directly and caring personally, um, Radical candor is, this is how I give radical candor and I give it the same way to everyone. Radical candor is unique to the person that you're giving feedback. So it's going to look different every time. And I think that's where some folks miss of what does caring personally mean to Kevin? What does caring personally mean to Deb? What does caring personally mean to Byron? And it could be very different things. And that's where you really need to understand. Um, and then you can, you know, give that direct feedback, but the caring personally is going to be different for different folks. I remember um, I have the type of relationship with my teams where we have a lot of fun, we joke, we're super sarcastic. And I was getting feedback externally at a company that I was at. 
Trier's so mean to her team, the way that she talks to her team, right? Like I would be, and it was a very open floor plan, you know, in tech. And I would just be like, why am I about to go into this session? And I don't have my data for the leaders. Like, I guess I'll just go in and not be able to get anything done. And they're like, I know I suck at my job, Trier. I'm going to get it to you. Like, by, like sarcastic, funny, whatever. But, and it's like, I need it now. I'm about to go into the meeting. And then they're like, yeah, I got it. And someone would overhear this and say, Trier, like you're so mean to your team, this and that. But that was that was radical candor on our team, and that was okay. And what I had to remind that person is like, I don't give you radical candor like that because I know you wouldn't be able to receive it in that way. It's different, right? And so people have to understand that it's different in different ways. And I really encourage folks to take in people's intersections, right? All the intersections that they stand at when you're thinking about caring personally, because it means different things to different folks. That's great. Thank you, Trier. I have one other question, and this question actually arises. I, I sit in these advisory boards. I listen to some of the issues and opportunities that they're they're dealing with. And, I mean, in the book, you talk about committees around hiring, compensation, not doing it individually, performance reviews, right? One on ones, and and it's it's a sensitive issue because there's a lot of a lot of nervous people out there to be quite frank, about sitting down, having a performance review um, and having it later cancel them. They said something incorrectly or they they gave feedback, although it may be right. Or actually, let's let's pull back a little bit. Maybe it's they're actually not giving the right feedback because they're scared. Any advice to those leaders? This is I think this has become a big is going to be a big issue this year as people start to go through that feedback process. Trier, what would you be suggesting within an organization today um, around that? I know that Kim has thoughts on this and, and, and something that's really helpful. The one thing that I will say is that um, there's a couple of our clients and organizations that actually canceled um, performance reviews for 2020. And I think that was, but like the messaging that they put around that to say, like we're not doing performance reviews. They had people do self-reflections on how they felt like their work was and they had a conversation with their manager, but they got, they didn't do their typical performance review because of everything that happened in 2020, quite frankly, did we really expect anyone to be exceeding expectations and doing people's best work, right? No. And so it took that pressure off of people just to be honest. And then because performance reviews are tied to their bonuses, they basically said, everyone's going to get the same percentage of their bonus, Right. And then we'll see what happens in 2021. I think showing up with empathy, but also finding ways to do that equitably is where, you know, we really just need to be thinking about how do we take care of our people and just being honest about where folks are right now. Yeah, I, th- I think in terms of sort of impromptu feedback, it's uh, in Whistling Vivaldi, Claude Steele writes about being the only, the only black PhD in his psychology department. And he talks about how crucial it was to get really good feedback from his academic advisor on his work. He said that was the thing that helped him get through that very difficult experience and to excel in his career. And he said, he explained that very often the tragedy is that people are less likely to give that kind of good feedback to people on their team who are underrepresented because they're, they're afraid of being called racist or sexist or, or, or whatnot. 
And that is like, it is your job as a leader to give everyone equal opportunity feedback. Uh, at the same time, I want to acknowledge the, the, the concern that is there, that people, and in fact, around this book, people often don't send me comments because they're afraid of being, can't, I promise, I'm not going to, I'm not going to publish, you can say whatever you want to me and I will not, uh, I, I mean, we, it has to be, it has to be safe to talk to one another. And, uh, and so, for example, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a, a white man who works at a big tech company said he was in a meeting and, and a woman on the team um, uh, in marketing was calling her campaign Rolling Thunder. And he knew that she wouldn't have chosen that analogy if she had known the history of Rolling Thunder. But he was afraid to tell her the history of Rolling Thunder because he didn't want to be accused of mansplaining or something. And it was tragic to me because I know her and I know she would have wanted and she wouldn't have accused him of mansplaining. And so I think part of it is that especially when we're a leader in an organization or when we are uh, overrepresented along some dimension or another, it is we have to we have to step up and we have to say, you know, it is it is my job to give this feedback and I'm going to do it. And and I'm, I'm going to overcome the fear because whatever you whatever fear you have as a leader, I promise you the the concerns of your employees who are underrepresented are much, much larger. And to call out what Alan Keyes said, we need to coach managers to give effective performance feedback. Now, only this is a muscle like everything else, and you need to give your employees and leaders um, the resources and the training to not only give feedback, but to action feedback. And that's 360, because we shouldn't just be waiting for performance reviews for feedback. We should be constantly provide, be providing our um, talent opportunities to develop throughout the year. Thank you so much, both Kim, Trier. I, we're running out of time. I know now the questions are flooding in and I'm like, oh my God, we're up to the hour. Um, I want to thank you very much. I'd like to thank everyone in the audience for joining us today and, and really opening up your minds and trying to really learn and, and listen um, to, to, to great experts really on this. Kim, thank you so much for the book, uh, Just Work. I urge you all, if you do have a chance, pick up the book, read the book, uh, it's enlightening. And, you know, there's always more to learn about this stuff. So thank you so much again, both Trier and Kim, for joining us today. Thank all of you uh, for joining us. And thank you, Leon, for having us. And, and keep in touch. We can, you can roll your own, read the book and roll your own, or you can reach out and Trier and I will help you roll the ideas out. That's great. So if you're interested in our The Way Forward live webcast, please visit us at po-leadership.com. You'll find a number of recorded past webcasts that have included Professor Rosabeth Cantor, Professor Michael Beer, both from Harvard, Joe Jackman, Harry Kramer, Dr. Greg Wells, Robert Chestnut. We talked about code of conduct uh, within the organization, Dr. Jason Salk. The list goes on. Uh, and we've got a number coming up in, in the coming months as well. So stay tuned. Until we meet again, I'd like to wish you all a fantastic day. Have a wonderful end of the month. And think positive and think about making some changes in your organization and thinking about things differently. Thanks again. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Your ambition makes you think, what if? 
It's what drives you to believe in your idea and its potential. It opens doors to a whole new world of possibilities, new inventions, and better ways of working. What if you worked with trusted advisors who understood your owner mindset and how to unlock the full potential of your private business to create long-term value in this transformative age? Together, we can turn your what if into why not. EY Private advises to the ambitious.